Hello, my name is Elizabeth Oldfield and I'm delighted to welcome you to The Sacred. This is a podcast about how we talk to people different from ourselves. I am particularly excited about this episode because I got to talk to one of my all-time heroes, Francis Spufford. Francis is a writer and professor of writing at Goldsmiths University. He's written five books of non-fiction, including unapologetic why despite everything christianity still makes surprising emotional sense and this book is probably the one i have recommended to the most people we keep a stack of them in the office to give out it's that rare thing deliciously well written funny deeply intelligent and profound golden hill his first novel won the 2016 costa debut novel prize and it's completely different but equally wonderful basically go out and read everything he's written in this episode we talk about francis's journey into christianity from atheism and the personal transformation crisis, really, that precipitated that. We also talk about the rise and fall of the new atheists. And of course, Francis reflects on his life in writing, how he attempted to write a polemical, non-polemical book on the value of Christianity and how turning to fiction changed the way he viewed both the world and the beliefs he held as an individual. It's a fascinating episode and it was an absolute privilege to do. I really hope you enjoy listening to it. Today I am talking to Francis Spufford. Francis is the author of five books of non-fiction, including Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Still Makes Surprising Emotional Sense. In 2007, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. He teaches writing at Goldsmiths College and lives near Cambridge, and his latest books are his first novel, Golden Hill, and a collection of essays called True Stories. And I'm really thrilled to be here, high up in a tower at Goldsmiths, uh, overlooking the teeming university campus. Um, getting a chance to talk to one of my favourite writers. I'm going to start with the question that I'm asking everyone, Francis, because I think it's really at the heart of uh, how we talk to each other who are different from us and why we so often misunderstand each other. What do you hold sacred? Love, I think, um, in, the, in, the, in, in the tougher sense of the word, meaning the, the thing that, that keeps people keeps people going in difficult situations and holds relationships together even when the world is not smiling on them, particularly love and the symbols of love and I suppose to some extent um, the Christian church so far as it works as as an organisation which is supposed to, to further love. There is a, a completely intelligible viewpoint that says that you know, I'm making a, a category error here that love does not ever float free from individuals because it's just something that, that people do. So love is always specific and particular. It's always Alice's love or Bob's love or Caroline's love. It's not it's not a thing in itself. Um, but I suppose I suppose where I get unprovable and would want to make small gamble on the sacred is in the idea that there is love as such as a principle of things rather than it just being a a category made of all the separate little bits of love we do ourselves and why do you think that's the thing 
that you hold sacred, that you would defend beyond rationality, that you uh, wouldn't want to put on a spreadsheet, but you would protect with your life? Because I'm a great big softy, possibly. Um, <laughs> because it tends to be the thing around which the the unexpected best parts of, of human behaviour tend to tend to gather. Um, because it's something that reaches out from our self-interest and ideally and sometimes really goes beyond the boundaries of family and tribe and class and culture and interest group and allows for, for humans to see each other as such. Presumably what you're not talking about here is romantic love or the feeling of being in love or maybe not just those things. I'm not just talking about those things, but I would be I would be failing in my duty as a as a great big softie if I didn't believe that romantic love sometimes has in it a kind of strong reflection of the kind of love I'm talking about. Um, probably too tidy, but but C.S. Lewis um, organised love into into four kinds um, in a book called The Four Loves. Um, romantic is one, um, but there's there's friendship in there too, um, and the the hard to define charity or agape. And to be honest, I can't remember the fourth one at this point. Um, but all of the different kinds of loving humans. Is it? Yes. Ah, okay. So that's romantic, erotic, friendly, and charitable. All of those four, but then we can widen it out. All of the different kinds of loving that humans do reflect some recognisable principle, which is to do with with valuing the other as such. Um, passion is not the enemy of of kind of of spiritual love. It may it may obscure it sometimes. Um, but it's actually, I'm not sure I want to be talking about spiritual love. It sounds as if I've joined um, some early 20th century bunch of theosophists and I'm going to wear loose, floaty clothing and only eat um, very badly cooked vegetables. This is a problem with the word, though, isn't it? It is a problem with the word. It's been, for a big central human thing, it's had an immense amount of kind of rose-coloured, gauzy nonsense attached to it, or um, greedy, opportunistic nonsense, because after all, people who are making harassing lunges at other people often justify it in the name of an uncontrollable love. See, the thing I'd love you to do is what you did with Sin in Unapologetic. And for those of you who've not read it... uh, Francis writes brilliantly about uh, the human condition and he says the word sin is one of those things it's almost not worth trying to use because of the accumulated associations we have of kind of lingerie and cupcakes. Um, uh, And instead he uses this phrase, and you'll have to excuse me if you're particularly sensitive to swearing because I'm going to quote him accurately, the human propensity to fuck things up um, and then turns it into a sort of multi uh, multi. consonant uh the hptftu i had to um for the audiobook of unapologetic i had to work out how to pronounce that as one sound and i decided that a sort of throat clearing <laughs> was the way to do it as if you were as if you were kind of spitting on the ground okay that's helpful because i never know in my head when i'm reading um how to pronounce it to myself but you so you took the word sin and really helped a lot of people understand what you were getting at um have you tried to do that with love? Is it too hard? Can I challenge you to? Ah, I'm not sure that I wish to be responsible for the, the project of, of 
of of rebranding love so that so that it 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 is shorn of its misleading associations um in fact i think i think i'm going to come over all wittgenstein here and say that actually words mean what we use them to mean and that love is in use already quite accurately in a number of different ways to mean different things which we understand perfectly well um, and that somewhere in the overlap of those different usages there is still the 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 tough resilient interesting respectworthy kind of kind of love I'm talking about and the the gauzy clouds and the associations of, of kind of Barbara Cartland and and masses of chiffon um, are somewhere out in the periphery if anyone can do it Francis if you ever you know have some spare time i think i think i'm i'll leave i'll leave a cultural re-engineering on that scale i think would would require <laughs> something else let me take you back a few years uh to the book that uh, i first encountered your work through on unapologetic why christianity still makes surprising emotional sense what drove you to write that i i thought of the book at the the moment when the kind of the the, the new atheist I don't want to call it a critique of religion, that's too serious. Um, argument with religion, tendency awesome. to throw things at religion, um, was was pretty much at its at its height. Um, and there had been lots of efforts to answer books like Richard Dawkins's The God Delusion um, or Christopher Hitchens's God is not great. Um, but they tended to accept the new atheist terms for the for the argument. They they thought that the, that the point was to to argue about the philosophical probabilities for the existence of God or not. Um, and it struck me that almost all of what I recognized as religion and almost all of well my reasons, for example, for being, to my surprise, religious, were being left out of this. So I thought, and to begin with, I wanted somebody else to write it. I thought that that it ought to be possible using completely ordinary language and assuming no religious knowledge at all, it ought to be possible to pick up the argument from this misleading wrong address that it had found itself at and then, and then carry it off back towards something which would be more in reach of the actual practice of faith as I knew. Knew it, and I thought that there was a chance of a, of a better conversation there because it wasn't supposed to be uh, it wasn't supposed to be an evangelizing book or even really an apologetic book. Um, though I suppose it kind of is a work of apologetics, um, but the title was serious as well as a joke. It was unapologetic, um, and it was supposed to do something more modest than to persuade people that Christianity is true because I don't actually know that it is true um, and I'm not sure that it can be demonstrated that it is true it can be felt to be true um, so I wanted to to do something smaller than that I wanted to to say it's recognisable it isn't just a, a bizarre antique authoritarian old-fashioned thing people do um, it's an intelligible answer to a real set of human problems, whether you whether you share it or not. Um, but to begin with, I was very eager for somebody else to do it. But I think this is probably true of many writers. I could kind of see how to begin it. So I wrote the beginning and then another chapter and then another chapter. And I realised that by then I was committed. 
And how you, by that point, you were a very well-established, very well-respected writer of mainstream nonfiction on a wide range of subjects. So when you took this, I presume, to your agent or your publisher to pitch it, what did they say? I didn't take it to my publisher to pitch it. Um, I simply went quietly about doing it while my publisher was under the impression that I was going to deliver a contracted book about something completely <laughs> different. Okay. Um, and when I did deliver it, I crossed my fingers and and held my breath and hoped that it was done with enough energy and enough kind of rhetorical joy that um, that it would strike them as a good idea, even though it was not the kind of thing that 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 a mainstream publisher usually does these days. Well, it is a wonderful book, and uh, I know many Christians felt a sense of oh, thank goodness, someone's written something recognisably close to my own lived experience, and we've already had someone else on the podcast reference it as really key in his kind of growing understanding of why this religion thing might be in any way relevant and attractive. Outside those circles, what was the response like from your colleagues here at Goldsmiths, from your literary colleagues and from, I guess, um, these public atheists themselves, if you had any? A surprisingly small amount of of actual hostility, um, except among those who are fully committed to the kind of the polemical atheist everyone everyone is a fool who isn't an atheist position um but mostly a kind of a kind of benign curiosity i think that um that anyone would do such a thing who didn't have to. Um, Goldsmith as a working environment is not somewhere where I've ever felt that 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 people looked askance at me for being a believer. Not that most of them know I I am, but you know we're in we're in southeast London. Um, it's a quite Muslim university in some ways. A lot of a lot of students are wearing hijab, and one of the nice effects of that, from my point of view, is that I can go and get an ash cross smeared on my forehead on Ash Wednesday, which tends to fall in term time, and walk around the campus. Um, and nobody goes, you peculiar religious weirdo. They just go, oh, it's, that's a Christian doing a Christian thing. Um, and it's no odder than it would be celebrating Eid from their point of view. Um, I don't know. In some ways, the difficulties have all been with particular kinds of Christian who have been who have been upset by it. Um, most atheists who aren't utterly committed, kind of zero sum adversarial, kind of we must reason must win or all the world is lost kind of kind of people have tended have tended to be intrigued. One of the nicest compliments I had was from somebody who said it was like getting a it was like getting a kind of brisk brain massage. Um, um, still didn't agree with me afterwards, but but nice to see a different case put well. So I get the impression that perhaps you were so effective at writing in a way that those who don't believe could connect with because you yourself are a former atheist. Tell me about that. I was a, a very kind of ordinary British sort of default atheist for 20 years or so from when I was in my mid-teens to when I was in my mid-30s. Um, and I suppose that's useful. I certainly find it find it weird to think that it would be difficult to imagine what it's like being being an atheist because um, I've, 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 I've been in 
I've been in both worlds and I can see I can see not just the cultural logic, the sense that the structures that used to support faith in this country have been kind of dismantled. And so if you want to be ordinary, you can find completely sufficient nourishment in a in a picture of, of, of a life here whose justification is all in a life here. Um, not just not just that, but that I can see that there is a compelling emotional case for it too, that there are some things which atheism has brought into view since the Enlightenment which are which are worthy of respect. Um deep respect to do with the dignity of materialism and to do with the reproach to human arrogance involved in decentering us from the universe and and seeing how astonishingly small we are in cosmic terms and how astonishingly kind of arbitrary maybe we are in in evolutionary terms as well that there is there is a sense of of appropriate scale there that is one of the of the victories um of of atheism that to say that human life is capable of generating all the meaning you could need and that we are truly at home here and ought to be finding such redemption as we need here yeah that's a position that's a position worthy of deep respect and if quite a lot of the time i think that's not right and it's not true it's not because i think it's ridiculous or or contemptible or or something to be dismissed readily i think that i think to say there needs to be more for me is is not to say that i want to reject those things but i want to supplement them i want to say that alongside um the dignity of materialism and the the the, the kind of the decentering discovery that we're, we're we're very small alongside that i want to put the christian emphasis on on the tragic human tendency to 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 mess things up i am abiding by the politeness of podcasts here um and to say that that actually there is there is a a gleam of something that can be recovered and turned to unexpectedly wonderful good in the recognition of the the muddle mistakes and sometimes evil of 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 human lives um it's you know if i think that there is more to be explained it's it's because i i i I think that all the all the data has not been accounted for if you say if you say it's a material world and I am, to quit Madonna, a material girl. You've given us some clues there, but what was it that triggered that kind of identity shift or shift of sense of home from, you know, functionally an atheist to being prepared to say, I'm a Christian? My my own experience of, of screwing up, of, of making the kind of mess for which I found I needed to be forgiven and not by the person who I had messed around because sometimes there's a kind of there's a kind of injustice in in hoping for forgiveness from from the person you've you've wronged um i I felt very hopeless in my mid thirties and discovered to my surprise that there seemed to be hope um i mean i was a I was born in 1964 so i i got I got childhood Christianity and for twenty odd years. Christianity had struck me 
as childish as a result, which is a very common pattern. Um, but once I started looking, once I was getting intuitions of grace, of of signs that things could be mended in ways I couldn't account for as an atheist, then I also found cautiously, step by step, um, that this thing I'd left behind in childhood actually turned out to be kind of big enough and realistic enough and and oh my deep enough to hold these these new things I seemed to be I seemed to be feeling. Um, I went and sat in empty churches a lot um, and tried to tried to listen. Um, and people who may think that I'm suffering from some kind of temporal lobe emergency here, I did not hear a commanding voice attended by trumpets telling me to to become a Christian. Um, I heard a lot of silence, and I I also heard in the silence a suggestion that I wasn't paying enough attention if I didn't allow for the possibility of better things than I thought I deserved. from that conversation to go to a short update from the Theos team. And I'm really delighted to be talking to our newest team member, Hannah Rich. Hannah, tell me, what were you doing before you came to Theos? Um, so before I worked at Theos, I worked at an organisation called the Young Foundation, um, where we did research on community and inequality um, and understanding what makes local communities tick um, and what makes them work and all of the different dynamics that happen in local communities in the UK and in, across Europe. And tell me about one particular project that you're working on, I believe, in Spain. Yeah, so I spent some time a couple of summers ago working with a business cooperative group in the north of Spain called Mondragon, um, which is a really fascinating place to work. They've got a really um, egalitarian business culture and it's rubbed off on local society as well um, and through using really egalitarian business principles, which have existed there for the last 50 years or so since it was since it was set up by a Catholic priest. Um, they've been able to create this really egalitarian culture and society, um, which really does show in the place as, as somewhere to live as well as somewhere to work. Tell me about the project that you've come to work with us on. Um, so I'm really excited about the project that I'm joining Theos to work on. Um, it's in collaboration with the Church Urban Fund, um, also referred to as CUF, and it's looking at the links between church growth, social action and discipleship. Um, I think all of those three things in and of themselves could take um, years to research what they each are and to define them. There's lots of different definitions for each of those three things, but we're really interested in and how they relate to each other. Is there a causal relation between those three things or is there a different direction um, of, of relationship between the three um, and how they look together? Now, there's a few words in there that are a bit churchy that might be a bit unfamiliar to people. What do you mean by discipleship? Um, loosely speaking, I guess I would I would mean relationships. So the, um, the, as the extent to which people, as they come into church and as they um, are involved in the church, become part of the community and are encouraged on the on the journey of becoming part of of the community of the church, and um, do that through relationship, not just through um, church membership in in numerical terms. And tell me about the the social action bit. This is something we've been really interested in. What is the role that faith communities are playing in UK civil society? What will you be looking at specifically? Um, I think this is something that we're all aware that churches do a lot of. There's a lot of headlines about the number of churches involved in food banks and night shelters, um, and more 
broadly serving their local community through action rather than just um, through bringing people into church. So doing things to serve the local community um, and identify needs. So I'm really excited to, to get to travel the country, to, to speak to churches who are doing really exciting things. Um, I think it's really important to, to highlight that these things aren't limited just to food banks and night shelters for the homeless. There's a lot more um, interesting things happening at a local level, happening across the country and churches that are serving specific needs of their local community, which might not look the same in, in different communities. Thank you very much, Hannah. As you know, one of the underlying themes of these conversations is how do we talk to people who believe different things from us, who hold different sets of values from us, who would you know, self-describe differently from us better. Uh, your book was written as, um, as Theos was actually launched into quite a kind of febrile, high-pitched moment in the debate about religion in public. What are your reflections on where we are now? I think things have got a lot calmer and a lot more generous. Um, and I would say that things had moved on from the situation I wrote, I wrote unapologetic for. And I'm, I'm, I'm rather glad about that. Um, one of my frustrations writing the book was that to engage with polemic requires you to be polemical. Um, it requires you to be funny, scornful, dismissive. And one of the big problems of the book was was changing gear from from sweary anger to trying to pay attention to delicate patience requiring things. Um, I think the situation is is easier now. I think the the moment when we seem to be locked in a state of of zero sum, some must win because others must lose. Kind of confrontation between um, belief and disbelief is mercifully going away and. I see many signs that people are more curious, not that they are signing up in droves for the Church of England, if only, but um, but that they are willing to to talk that that there is the possibility of of conversation which which isn't aggressive now. Do you think that I agree with you? I, I, I have found remarkable openness in our through our work at Theos and just more generally uh, the sense that that moment when any intelligent educated person of course could not even uh, consider the possibility of of belief because you know Dawkins and Hitchens and Sam Harris and all these people who are they proved it they were highly intelligent men and they proved it well they were I think uh, charismatic, particularly Christopher Hitchens, brilliant writer. You know, there were things that were very attractive there. Um, but, you know, for, for lots of reasons, that moment has passed. And there is certainly, uh, I think, a willingness to listen. My fear really is that given the state of American politics and where that's going with religion and politics, we may see that swing back the other way a little bit. I think that, I think that, that some American evangelical support for Trump is going to be immensely destructive to, to any chance there might be for people to take them seriously when they talk about faith, hope and charity. You think a lot about language. It's your job to teach uh, students how to write well. Um, and one of the phrases I love from you talking about your own writing is about the feel of words in the mouth. We are interested in our public language, which functionally happens in a, in a sort of mediated way, either through the mainstream media or in, increasingly in kind of social media spaces. How, as you listen and read, uh, where do you think we are with public language? How are we doing? I'd want to split that question into into bits. 
Um, in a funny way, one of our problems in Britain is that we don't an equivalent of the of that kind of American civil civil religious language. The 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 uniting idealism around a shared picture of who we are and what we're what we're for. All of that stuff. It's seems weird now but it's not very long ago the attempt to come up with some definition of british values that didn't make people kind of snort and fall over with laughter was an attempt to give us something like that but these things cannot be generated by fiat so we do not have a piece of uniting central language where people of very different opinions can meet with with the dignity of something being known to be important um what we've got as a culture is much more like a set of tones of voice and and ironies you could argue that that banter is to the united kingdom as talking about the constitution is to the united states of america um, it is depressing because banter is not that flexible as a as a as a as a common tongue um i mean language is weird anyway because it is both individual and utterly oceanically plural so it's both something you can make some choices about yourself what comes out of your mouth what you choose to say though of course your chosen utterances will be vastly outweighed by all the kind of babbling chatting that you do anyway for the rest of the time and the fact that we all are little bits of water in a vast ocean of conversation over which we have no direct control the very most we can do is try now and again to shape our contribution to the to the to the ocean of talk so i i have i have views about what i think would be helpful in how we talk to each other but i have no expectation that i am going to wake up and find myself king and that anybody else will pay any attention but for the record it would be great if it would be great if religious people stopped being frightened of tough old language and gave up on the project of of modernizing faith in ways that make it sound like polystyrene so if you did happen to have a magic wand and you could change the way people engage with each other in public say uh think about all of the people in the discussion what would what advice would you give them i would instruct them never again to sing the hymn i sang on sunday in which we asked god to give us quotes new dimensions to our insight um entirely abstract entirely vacuous um entirely therapeutic i would want us to pay attention to to the power of concrete language um not language about concrete but language that is that is solid that has the the kind of the direct heft of experience in it and i would want to encourage us to talk about faith as what it is which is something we feel and do something which comes out of both the colloquial language of every individual's experience or comes out of ancient and beautiful and still concrete forms when we for example the book of common prayer lost cause but there are very good things there are very good things in it i don't even want it to be a victorious victorious cause but um the confession in the book of common prayer in which which talks about the um we have followed too much the, div uh, the devices and desires 
of our own imaginations. Yes. I mean, devices and desires are beautiful words which anybody listening, if they happen to speak 17th century English, anybody listening can, can, can fit into words like that, whatever it is that is that is presently oppressing them and get rid of it desires good word devices good word particularly with the slightly facebook like connotations it's acquired but okay that won't do but there must be modern equivalents where we can find words for our tongues which are dignified direct and big enough to hold everything that everyone is feeling um but hang on, I'm actually talking about liturgy here, and you don't want to talk about that entirely. You want to talk about how we we talk to each other. Okay, the colloquial language of the soul, um, a general assumption that the other person is also operating in good faith, that they will come out to meet us, that they are not holding their opinions as a as a thin mask for some unpleasant agenda of, of, of hate or exclusion, that people on the whole try to mean what they say, a kind of willed generosity which allows a space in which to notice things we didn't know. I agree, as you can tell. I think that the fundamental, well, one of the fundamental problems with our public language is the assumption of bad faith, uh, because you start from a place where you're never going to be able to connect on any kind of human level. And even if the other person is acting in bad faith, if you assume good faith and act appropriately and hold your ground, uh, then very often um, they shift and you can you can properly connect. Conversations conversations which have got something genuinely at stake are, after all, on the whole, more compelling for human beings than the kind of win lose ritualized encounters which you mostly get on Twitter and social media these days. People, given the chance, and the chance is not held out to them often enough, I think would probably rather be talking about the important stuff in a way that reflects that it's important to them too. But it's hard to do that in an sort of horrible phrase, but in an undefended way in public, to be honest about, actually, there's a lot emotionally at stake in these conversations. We often feel scared or attacked or worried and unsure. And therefore, these uh, quite aggressive postures, you know, anger is easier than fear, isn't it? Certainly is. Um, And safer than than fear. I think there is a a kind of an an element in our culture at the moment, um, which makes this specifically difficult, which is that we are out of practice at knowing that it's that it's okay and ordinary and survivable to be wrong or to be to be to be confused or to be fallible um, to change your mind quite that there's a sort of that a kind of a sort of brittle sort of front might be essential to to, to self-respect in some ways it's only the experience of, of finding out that you have been wrong and of changing your mind about something major that tells you that hey you're still standing afterwards and that that this does mean that you don't need to talk for victory all the time that, that sometimes you can be sad rather than turning it into anger you uh have done an interesting thing in the last few years of moving from a very established career in nonfiction to branching out with your first novel. Uh, talk to me about that move from nonfiction to fiction. And is it uh, more difficult to talk about themes of belief and unbelief, which are shot through, I think, a lot of your books in fiction or in nonfiction? It's it's fiendishly difficult in in any form in any form um but it's it's differently difficult and 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 there are different 
kind of openings as well there. Um, I mean, the common thread for me, which is something that I was I was exploring in this, this book of essays, True Stories, is, is that I've always been interested in stories, whether they were fictional or non-fictional. I have a kind of, I think, fundamentally story-shaped apprehension of of the world. So I'd kind of shifted balance rather than, than, than shifting kind of project altogether when I went from non-fiction to fiction. Um, in fiction, though, all experience is somebody's experience. All knowledge is something that somebody specific knows. Um, the, the, the engine of fiction is imagined points of view that aren't your own. There is a kind of royal imaginative power in that and also a tremendous chance to make a fool of yourself and get things wrong. But um, but that's inseparable from, from the imaginative power, which means that you have the privilege and the ridiculous responsibility of trying to imagine what the world is like to souls, not your own. In some ways, it means you're working far more indirectly more like kind of gardening than architecture is the metaphor i keep coming back to you can try and make things grow but you can't devise them and push them and force them to go into into shapes but the power and this applies to 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 talking about faith too in fiction is is that you get something when it works at all which is in its proper place in in other lives um Golden Hill, my first novel that was definitely a novel, has got some some quiet theology going on in there, both because it comes out of my sensibility, but also because because the kind of story I now want to tell is to do with kind of harm and recuperation is basically a kind of grace and redemption story i can't help it but not in a way not in a way that is that is that is pushing propositions at the reader it offers and it observes um it doesn't conclude or insist or or demand otherwise it wouldn't be fiction um and it seems to me that there is a freedom in that and a respect in that and you 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 say i think this is my best guess at imagining how the world works and how it works for, for souls and minds other than my own. Now it's yours. Make what you will of it. Um, it's really undictatorial fiction. Um, finally, you you operate across different worlds. You are um, in academia broadly. You're in the world of literature. You live right beside a cathedral in Ely and have some contact with um, the world of the structures of the Church of England. What are your observations with the cultures in those places and how they deal with differences in values and belief and those difficult conversations that we um, have across them? One of the things that follows from how private most modern British lives are, is that that many opportunities for kind of for actual friction have been kind of left out. So we get our, our you know, and, and people can self-select for like-mindedness online. So points where people knowingly encounter difference can actually be relatively rare. Um, it's going to sound odd if I say this, but but education, I mean, teaching people things, is one of the places where you actually have to engage with the with the with, with the state of what other people think. It is not a process of of pouring knowledge into into jars. It's it's inherently conversational. Um, having said that, a contemporary British university, I can now reveal, is not a utopia, and. Um, 
Um, and there are some kinds of difference that they're, that they're, that they're better at than, than others. Um, on the other hand, I tend to find goodwill. Um, I tend to find goodwill where I work, um, even where the differences are too wide for them to, they just don't seem to compute for people. Um, the church too, weirdly, at least on paper, is supposed to be a place which creates affinity between people who otherwise may have nothing in common at all. Um, the ideal picture, which sometimes kind of gleams into actual view and then disappears again, is of a place where everybody is adopted and everybody is still family and you don't even have to like each other to be to be brothers and sisters. In fact, the church is like every other human enterprise itself sorts into 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 groups of like-minded people um and there isn't as much encounter with difference as as there should be oddly i felt it most in village churches when my wife was being a country vicar because there are few enough christians in in any one village that you really have to rub along together irrespective of of personality get into a town and people can start fitting themselves into into clubs of the like-minded in in religion too actually spaces that require people to where, where people voluntarily submit themselves to a kind of discipline of paying attention to to other people and patiently discovering what the hell they're like are really precious i do not have a recipe for making more of them but i hope there are more of them francis thank you so much for talking to me today it's been wonderful you for listening to the sacred i really hope you enjoyed it and i do hope that you're listening to our previous episodes do follow us on twitter at sacred underscore podcast you can tell me directly what you thought at theos elizabeth and you can find out more about our work at theos at theosthinktank.co.uk 